Whatever it is you want to do in life, you'll be able to do. It's always you versus you. That it doesn't matter how old you are, how young you are, you can achieve anything that you set your mind to. Spend the rest of your natural life waking up and going after it. This is my purpose, and you will not stop me. You are listening to Mojo Sports. Hey there, Mojo Sports fans. It's Lenny Arrowsmith here, one of the hosts of the show. And in this episode of the In Focus show, I'm speaking to Gabby Lockyer. Gabby has an interesting background as she began her foray into sport from her university years when she began playing rugby union and her pathway into sports journalism for the BBC. She's among the early pioneers of UK women's rugby at a time when its reputation was building following England's campaign success on the back of the 1991 Women's Rugby World Cup. She shares about her experience of playing rugby before it was professional and the pride in the jersey, fueling her passion to play, representing club and country, and her continued love of rugby now. Gabby shares about balancing her rugby passion while pursuing a career in sports journalism and starting a family. And we hear some of Gabby's memories of the high-profile athletes she's had the pleasure of interviewing and being in the presence of some greats, not only in rugby, but tennis, soccer, darts, motocross, and even a member of the royal family. It's such an interesting conversation as we talk about how much the game's evolved, from when players weren't paid, its growing global reputation, and the importance of having representation and a voice with rugby organizations to bolster the support for women's rugby. As Gabby braved through a very sore throat, she gratefully gave her time to sit with me and share about her life, experience, and interesting career pathway. I hope you enjoy the interview as I did. Gabby Lockyer, lovely to meet you. This is the first time that we're meeting. How are you? I'm good. Well, I'm good at sore throat, so hopefully you'll bear with me, but I'm all good other than that. Where should we begin? Well, I had a very boring childhood in North London, um, which didn't really entail too much sport. My dad was a, um, a semi-professional soccer player, oh, yeah. um, and that all came to a halt when he had to earn a real living. Um, but his love and passion for sport filtered down through me, yeah. um, skipped my sister um, and went straight to me. And while I played five-a-side soccer, that was pretty much it until I went to university, where I discovered rugby union. I went to university in Liverpool in the northwest of England, mm-hmm. soccer mad. But for some reason, the men's and women's rugby union um, teams flourished. And so did the rugby league team for the men's. We didn't have one for the women. And so we trained together, the three of us, three teams. I learned very quickly that university sport is pretty tough and you have yeah. to be pretty fit. And then to get better, you really wanted to try and play on a weekend um, for a club. So I joined Waterloo and played for them. And I was very fortunate that the president and captain of Waterloo Women's Club was a lady called Jill Burns, was the captain of England at the time. And she was phenomenal. She was not only a phenomenal athlete, she was a real amazing leader. Um, She was incredibly influential in the game um, in terms of bringing it into the media um, and into the forefront and she was so passionate that you couldn't help but just want to play you want to play with her you want to play for her Um, and a few other England players senior England players were in that Waterloo team it's a very strong team I was in the early stages of my rugby playing career learned very quickly that position I played which was hooker Um, was a much needed and very disliked position by everybody else I I actually fell into it when I first started playing because I was so unfit I didn't know what the game was I didn't know where to play yeah someone said oh just fill in here quite literally fill in 
I loved it. Absolutely loved it. Didn't want to play anywhere else. Wow. I thought it was nuts, especially my mother at the time. I ended up playing, um, obviously, first team for university. And then I got into the first team at Waterloo. Jill was behind me at number eight, which was awesome. Then you sort of went through the processes because I was part, I was already in that network. You then get encouraged to go to trials for various different levels. 1994, I got, after several different pickups, I ended up getting picked up for the England students team. Yeah, right. At the time, the, I can't remember how many nations there were, there weren't that many nations had played the 1991 World Cup. Yeah. Which was never seen as a World Cup. The men's game thought it was the worst thing in the world. Um, how dare the women try and have their own World Cup and call it a World Cup. Mm. Um, and all these women that were playing from, there weren't that many juniors at the time, but all these women that were playing social rugby, I was like, hang on a second, we want to support this. Yeah. So when 1994 came round, there were not huge numbers of people playing, but certainly a lot more than there had been in 1991. Yeah. And... It was still a very amateur game. So those women that set up the 91 World Cup, most of them carried on into 1998 and beyond. They didn't get paid. It was all self-supported, self-funded, self-sponsored. Some of the countries that came over had to try and get money for them to travel. Um, and so quite a lot of, there was an awful lot of camaraderie because the, the ladies were all sort of helping each other, to, other teams to come through. England team had its 23 players and a couple of fringe players, but he didn't have a net. I didn't have a second team. Yeah, right. So if they lost a few players, they were thrown completely. So the student team became their reserve team. Right. Okay. So okay. Um, we didn't travel with them, but we trained at the same venue. We played other student teams, or if the country didn't have a student team, we played their B team. So we ended up being so enthused by all of this, having I'd got my jerseys and I was very proud to wear my jersey I actually made played my first game when my nephew was uh, about two weeks old maybe less um, other than my father who very quickly learned about rugby union because he knew nothing and um, the rest of my family did not have a clue yeah right um, my mum was the best supporter in the world but didn't know what she was watching or when to cheer at the right time <laughs> so my sister and my brother-in-law my parents and um, my new nephew came to see me play Wow. Horrified when at the end of the game, my mum insisted that I held this baby. I was completely covered in mud. And I still have this picture of me wearing this not very white jersey, uh, holding this swaddled baby um, and just stuff all over my face. Gosh, that'd be a great photo to look back on. Um, and it's one of my favourite pictures. My nephew is now six foot seven, plays rugby, which he took up at university and is enormous. He's absolutely, he's a man mountain. And I held that boy in my arms after my first game. So that's one of my nice memories. <laughs> so from there, we ended up obviously going to watch the World Cup in 94. All of us wearing our student jerseys, just in case we got picked up. Mm-hmm. And then it became, um, it grew, it flew. The, the 94 World Cup absolutely flew. Women's rugby just took off. Yeah. Yeah, 94 was when rugby really took off for women. Um, by 1998, uh, maybe it was a bit later than I can't remember. Um, there were, I think they, they classed it as the fastest growing sport in the world. Yeah, right. New Zealand 
I think couldn't make it over to the first World Cup, but I think they came to the second and third ones. I'm not sure. Yeah, I think the first one was because apparently IRB hadn't sanctioned it That's as right. an official event um, yeah. that would require the participation. That sounds right. Oh, it was that 1991 was horrendous because you had these women who worked their socks off physically and in an everyday job and it cost them a fortune. People were some of the girls were remortgaging their houses. So they could pay to travel and pay for their training. Because if you remember back in 1991, you didn't have a gym on every corner. Yeah. Um, You didn't have that many high profile PTs who would get you to the level that you needed to play two games or two games a day or however many games over a short period of time. That that system wasn't in place at the time for men either. Yeah. In the men's game, when they turned pro, they got it all. In the women's game, there was no turning pro. Yeah. So 91-94 was a bit tricky. When we got into the late 90s, early 2000s, by this time I, I'd stopped playing probably early 2000s. Mm-hmm. Um, by that time I'd finished playing at, for university level, student level. I had moved down I carried on playing for Waterloo for a bit and then I relocated to the south of England I had decided to go into journalism now I'd always wanted to had never been able to while I was um, at university having struggled to get into journalism through the normal writing method I decided to go through the engineering method through the back door oh okay so I did an engineering degree Um, quite a a mixed one a brand new one that Liverpool University was doing Mm -hmm. finished that I was um, doing some work for local radio stations and discovered that they could pay um, a postgraduate the same as they could pay me, which was not very much, mm-hmm. to do other things. But that postgraduate already had all the qualifications for law, public administration, shorthand, etc. Yeah. Whereas they would have to send me to be trained. So all these postgrads were coming in doing jobs that traditionally a volunteer would progress to. Yeah, right. So then I had to go and do a postgrad, finished my postgrad, went back down to London, carried on playing, played for Saracens. Oh. <laughs> and I got to the point where I had, I was getting older. Yeah. Girls were getting younger. There were a lot of Antipodean girls coming over from Australia, New Zealand and the islands or coming over to London because they started to put some money into women's rugby yeah. um, in the early 2000s, not much. Like the odd, you'd get the odd player that was sponsored. Yeah. Everybody else was trying to keep up. And I remember we were doing a drill. I had already decided that I really needed to stop playing. I was freelancing as a journalist. Uh, we played on Sundays. I'd get to work on a Monday and I was struggling to, to keep moving as comfortably as I did maybe 10 years earlier. Yeah. So I was already contemplating, you know, the girls are getting broader and stronger and fitter and I need to work. Yeah. Went to training one night and um, this huge she was Samoan huge Samoan girl and I hit in the middle of this grid and I literally flew backwards and went that's it the world has moved on (laughs) I'm still back there somewhere (laughs) so I kind of ended up playing um, local rugby yeah and I met my husband Mm -hmm. and moved out to the west country of England and Gloucestershire is a heartland of rugby yeah they love it there every they live drink and breathe it every day of their lives yeah. the back page of the newspaper you know, quite often the front page of the local newspaper leads on rugby union 
Yeah, right. No right. other paper, local paper in the country does that in the UK. So we moved to Gloucestershire and I started playing local rugby. Mm-hmm. Um, I was still travelling backwards and forwards to London to do my freelance work. I ended up coaching the women's team that I was playing for, coaching my husband's men's team um, and playing a little bit. Um, and I, you find that when you have played to a certain level and you're coming up against someone that's never played before, it can get a little bit frustrating yeah. and it can also be quite dangerous because they don't have the skill set. You end up getting injured because you're doing it right. Yes. So um, I had that's finally after all those years of playing, I ended up breaking my nose because this young lady wouldn't. I kept trying to get her to set properly and she wouldn't. And she ended up crashing straight into me. I lost my temper a little bit, I think. Um, leave that story to my husband um, <laughs> because I think he was refereeing at the time. But anyway, um, so I, I played until um, we started a family and then that was the end of my playing career. And I um, have actually, over the last few years, started coaching the boys here at school. Um, I've been working here since 2011 and um, every now and then they ask me if I can help coach. So um, I was coaching the 15s and they now give me the, the boys who... Um, don't have the skill set to get into the 15s. So I now coach the juniors in, this, in what we call a sevens competition here. Yeah, that's cool. Is it a find uh, 94, 1991 England, Gabby coming out um, with the tactics um, on the field while uh, coaching this young Well, squad? so much has changed in the laws of rugby. I have to say, I remember I was coaching, scrummage coaching with the, with the boys and they're all primary school. Mm. And so they know everything. <laughs> and... I had one young man tell me that his club coach told him he had to do this at the back of the scrum. And I I looked at him and went, well, if that's a new law, it's rubbish because it doesn't work. You need to do it like this. Anyway, he took it, my comments back to his coach. He came back the next week. My coach wasn't very happy you said his tactic was rubbish, but he understood what you said and he liked what you did. (laughs) And it was kind of like, Okay, probably should have realised out of the mouths of babes. Yeah. Um, but anyway, it was it's it's always worked. They've always been pretty good. I I tried not to put too many of the higher profile tactics in. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I mean that's how you've remained sort of involved with rugby. Are you uh, an avid supporter of the English women's rugby side? Whenever you see them take to the field, I'm an um, avid supporter of all rugby. To be perfectly yeah. honest with you, I've been somewhat disappointed with Waratahs over the t- over the last few years. Australian rugby, I, I struggle to support Australian rugby. I support Australia at many many other events. But there is something about rugby which means I, I would always support England. Yeah. Um, and the fact that, you know, I played in the front row for so long, watching the Australian front row play gets me. Okay. And I spend the whole time grimacing and making comments to the point where nobody wants to watch rugby with me anymore. Yeah, I completely, completely understand, Gary. I am a New Zealand-born all blacks uh, well even though i've been living here in australia for a long time i still support um the all blacks and you know i am kind of similar to yourself whenever i watch australia play when it comes to rugby you still just have that that loyal you know your heart is still loyal to uh your home team and thinking about it i mean england the women's team for a long time look i know that rugby is very strong 
yeah, not just the men, but the women have for a long time been showing that, you know, they've got the goods, they've got the skill. They certainly have proven um, many times that, you know, they can take down, you know, the Black Ferns, which mm-hmm. was like the team debate and, you know, uh, much like the men's comp. You know, everyone sort of looked at them as a standard. Um, I did actually uh, go back and have a look at a few um, documentaries about the 91 and the 94 um, World Cup. And USA, um, I always thought as a team that we really need to keep an eye on, you know, if, you know, Australia, New Zealand or England. I mean, the, the US women, um, you know, that side has been working hard to to get yeah. to that arena for a while. I mean, there's certainly someone who's... Um, uh, going to be nipping at the heels of someone like um, the women's team and they've got the funds Mm. the facilities and the motivation um, as well as the the uh, the people um, Mm. as well they've got the the participation to to get it to that level I would be surprised if we see USA rugby women's you know at the top of um, you know the table in the next six to eight years I would agree I remember um, same with soccer when um, women's soccer was dominated by a few nations and America ploughed money into the women's soccer through universities, colleges, through everything, sponsorship, um, coaching, and they used so many of their athletics realm yes. to put it into soccer. Yeah, And it's brought wonders for them. They're an amazing soccer team. And we were watching quite a lot of soccer players moved into rugby. Mm. Yeah, and athletes and everything else. So they had all of that background, that, all of that stuff that I was talking about earlier, where they, you know, you just didn't have it. It wasn't there on a plate for you. And the Americans had it set up really well. And so when all these rugby players came over, um, and they're ever so proud, as everybody should be. But not only that, they had all of it in here. Yeah, they had the mentality. They had all of that stuff that everybody else craved. Um, and they came over and everyone was, wow, you know, they're so fast. Oh, they're so, they didn't necessarily have that deep set knowledge. Yeah, the rugby IQ. Yeah. yeah. They yeah. just didn't have it. Not all of them, some did. <laughs> Excuse me. But they definitely had, they definitely had the, 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 the speed and the step. They had the, the grit. So they had the, the, the agility through the back row to get out and be extra backs. Um, They just needed to improve on some of the other things. And they all came over to the UK. Yeah. And they played in the UK. We had so many Americans playing throughout the the top leagues. Yeah. And I think also, too, um, there would have been a hunger because I think at the time, the only league that was really welcoming women was the lingerie football league. And I don't think um, a lot of women would be wanting to be getting around. They want to take it seriously. No, exactly. Exactly. So I think the option of rugby um, and playing abroad as well with, you know, a nation and with a community of players that have been playing for a while and and sort of take it seriously where you're not wearing, obviously, mm. <laughs> like revealing outfits would have been the best experience for them and to obviously lift their game. I don't know what your thoughts are on, on uh, like transition of players from one sport to the other. I think now that rugby is a little bit, you know, it's professional now, you've got a lot more people coming in. Um, much like you said that people were like in America, they saw where they could sort of um, shift players from one sport into another in order to increase participation, um, you know, in our here in Australia. It's a part-time 
professional uh, sport. Did you see many players when you were sort of coming through the ranks or, you know, even later while you're in the UK, did you see any players who were like, you know what, stuff this rugby business, you know, I'm a woman, I'm going to go in and uh, do rugby league or, you know, I'm going to sort of change course or did you see them sort of like <coughs> thinking that the money or like just the seriousness um, was just... So I don't bad. think anybody in my era played for the hope of getting paid. Yeah, right. It was all kudos. It was all, you know, pride in the jersey, being able to play, played in a World Cup, or you played, you know, the best team in the world, whatever. Yeah. As professional professional players, professionalism, I suppose, came in pockmarked around the game. Yeah. A couple of players were like, well, you know, if I give up my job and do this full time, what happens if I get an injury? Yeah. You know, what, what happens next? Can I, oh, it's a big risk. So it wasn't even a, I'm going to be a professional player. Yeah. It was, there was a, a couple of young girls that came through. I'm trying to remember the girl's name. And one girl played on the wing so fast and so tough in the stand with a few mm-hmm. friends of mine watching this girl. And she looked tall and she looked square, but she didn't look super muscly. Yeah. Okay. And she literally ran through players. You hear that phrase many times. Yes. But I watched her. It was like watching Jonah Lomond. Yeah. She literally ran through players down the wing right in front of me. Mm -hmm. And she scored, I can't tell you how many tries in this game we were watching. She was a pro. She had been sponsored to turn pro. Now, her attitude was, at the time, I don't have a career. I have some jobs that I do to earn my rent or whatever. Yes. Rugby is what I want to do. Yeah. Somebody said, fine, okay, we will pay for your training, we will pay for your kit, we will pay for your coaching, we'll pay for your transportation. Yeah. Um, we'll still have to do something to pay for whatever else you need, but we wow. will support you. Yeah. <clears throat> and she stood out from the entire team. Yeah. Because not only was she driven and an excellent player, but she had that step Support. up in professionalism. Yes. And she was awesome. Yeah. She was, lit. I mean, the whole state of when she did this. And you kind of thought, right, well, if that's going to work, more people are going to do it. There's going to be less of the, oh, what do I do? It's going to be a bit risky. And there are going to be more people that move into it. And it did sort of trickle through. There were a few players in the late 90s who did get quite substantial support. Mm. Uh, other people started working for the rugby union. Oh, I see. They, they, there was a, a, a bit of a sea change in terms of we have to change the rugby union's mindset. We can't go from your 57 old farts to, you know, having women in the game wanting to compete on the same level because the board of the rugby union did not want women to be playing at a high level. Yeah. All the money had to go to men. Yeah. So the more that women filtered in, to the higher level, the, the, the actual administration side of the game, mm. the more respect the women's game got, the more um, attention it got, and the more sponsorship it got, the more people were saying, oh, maybe they could play a game at Twickenham. Yeah. <gasps> Shock horror. I remember when the first kick was made at Twickenham, and it was, oh, my goodness. And then the, tele- the BBC flipped straight off it onto something else. They showed the first kick, and then they moved on to something else. Wow. There needed to be something massive, because in the late 90s, it was a bit of a trickle. Yeah, yeah. have found is not so much a crossover to other sports from rugby union. I think certainly in England, when you play rugby, you play rugby. Yeah. Join from hockey. 
or you might nip or somewhere where there's a bit of shoulder barging or something. One of the girls who also lives in Australia now um, actually ended up going on to play for Wales, a full Wales team. Yeah, right. Um, on the wing. And she was both a hockey player and an athlete uh, at Sprinter. So, I mean, not surprisingly, um, she now does try triathlons and Ironmans. Um, so, you know, some people carry on. Um, some people have children. Yeah. So <laughs> you make your life choices. But no, I don't see many people moving over. What I, I do see in the men's game, obviously, people moving over to where the money is. So they'll yeah. go over and play American football. Yeah. Um, and they'll arrive on the pitch maybe four times in a game and kick the ball and that's it that's all they've got to do yeah I've always felt that um like England's always had a really good respect for rugby um though I mean like in both genders um because the women you know like you say you only play rugby it's the one it's the yeah. one game for life um there isn't much of a shift but I guess the natural sort of progression um, after their playing career is to move into coaching uh, similar to what you've done several women who I've interviewed on the show here they talk about like their sort of um, possible opportunities uh, post-playing is about journalism, media, um, you know, somewhat still being part of the game, but not necessarily on the field and lacing up the boots. Have you seen a lot of that? Um, not only just like with yourself, but, you know, a lot of your um, playmates? Like- oh, I think in the early days when I first went into journalism, um, we had a couple that tried it. It's, it's not a glorious job. Yeah. Um, you know, if you're going to sit in the studio and commentate on a game, that's quite nice. You get all the perks. And we did have a few girls that came, you know, once they finished playing, they were brought in to do some commentary because there was no other knowledge. There was no, nobody knew anything about who the players were, what their specialities were, what we should be looking out for. So when they first started televising it, they needed those women. Yeah. Um, my mother always loved it. When I was, when she heard mine and my, my pieces on the radio, she'd be ringing me up like, yeah, I know mum, I did it. Um, <laughs> Bless your mum. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Gabby. Any famous names or any uh, highlights of um, high-profile people that you've met along the way or interviewed? You, you know, you, you meet some people in this world and they leave a mark on you. Yeah. Um, and I have been very, very fortunate with going to the All Blacks training camp and interviewing um, Ian Jones and wow. um, Joan Lomu. Wow. And several other players who I had to ask to sit down when I spoke to them in <laughs> five foot five. And they were the most charming people I've ever met. Joan alone, I actually went to ask him a question, and there was a whole throng of journos. And I went to ask him a question, and he actually turned around and went, Guys, enough, stop. Yes. Wow. To me. Wow. <laughs> so um, he was somebody that I, I just, it's such a loss to the game, such a loss to the world. What and he was, man. I think he was only about like 19 at the time. He was, when, he was very, very young, but yeah. had He's everything a, about him. Monster of a man. When we heard he got picked for the All Blacks, it's like, well, that's just a no brainer. And then to see how he performed overseas as well it wasn't just New Zealand that knew about him huh. and, and, and it was the whole world and, and no one about him and I think a lot of people back home were just sort of wondering whether he'd be able to cope with the pressure of being in um, the spotlight um, you know on a global arena like that and um, like just that little story that you shared then tells me that he actually did all right oh he did he was just amazing I mean he'd already made a name for himself I can't remember if it was after he traipsed over Rory Underwood um <laughs> or or before, but he he just had such a nice presence about him. Yeah. He, you know, I remember coming out of that conversation with both him, Ian Jones was hysterical. 
I remember just standing there like that and he looked at me and went do you mind can we (laughs) just sit down please and he was so lovely and I came out of it and went I actually can't believe I've just done that and I've had a few instances like that over my time speaking to those two was just unbelievable my first big thing was was chatting with Dean Richards yeah I um, went to work for BBC Sport and they asked me if I would go out and cover uh, Wimbledon for two successive years as a feature writer wow so I got to interview Navratilova wow um, another amazing person Nigel Spinks and Neville Southall so when I started covering Gloucester it was a a very different kettle of fish so Gloucester how so uh, at the beginning, were um, in the second tier of the uni- uni- European competition. Yeah, right. Um, and then they got, they moved up to the top tier. They started to get much better players. So obviously got higher up in the premiership, got into the top tier of European competition. Mm-hmm. So we got to do some very lovely trips around Europe. Um, and I, you know, I've met, again, I've met some great people. Yeah. Through rugby. Um, and I've seen, I saw a massive change from when I first started in rugby with the topless model advertising soccer yeah. to going to France for the world, for men's world cup. And I was pregnant with my daughter at the time. Yeah. And I'd established by that time, I'd, I'd become quite established at, at Twickenham. So you, you turn up and everyone would see, you know, oh, how are you? Blah, blah, blah. And everyone's chat. People would start to come over to me. Yes. Um, I think the turning point for me at Twickenham with the, the old guard. Yes. Phil Vickery. Phil Vickery um, was the Gloucester captain. And he became the England captain. He was a prop forward. Oh, my gosh. <coughs> Raging Bull. Mm. He had his, his own um, company of clothing and fitness wear. Raging Bull. And again, I was ghostwriting his column for him. However, there were Gloucester players. So we had them in the Italian, the French, the Scottish, Welsh, English. But we had a Gloucester player. I was travelling around covering that particular game. So I was going all over the place. Gosh, that would have been awesome. <laughs> so it, would, it was awesome. But at Twickenham, I would go into the... The room so there was um it's the big sort of uh, training room there the door would open when they'd be prepared to do interviews and you'd go onto this sort of balcony overlooking the training room yeah there would always be somebody down there it was just steve thompson or somebody else down there you know right. doing some warm-ups on the on the bike or that's all hoping to get their picture taken <laughs> um phil came up the stairs There's, so the changing rooms was underneath and they would come up the stairs to this balcony phil came up and these guys literally rushed over to him. And I'd been doing this ghost column with him for about a year by now. And every time I went to Twickenham, obviously, I would talk to him. I'd do his column as part of my interview. Or we'd mm. go off and we'd do it separately if he had something he particularly wanted to say. Yeah. And the female video journalists. Yeah, yeah. And only a couple of what I would call proper journalists. Probably wrong now because there are a lot more video journalists now. Yes. Um, traditional traditional far fewer far fewer with a notepad yes um and so I kind of they knew who I was and a couple of them would come and ask me um and the press association guy would always talk to me because you need contacts yeah that's right you need to have contacts in journalism Phil Vickery had come up the stairs and this throng of people went towards him and he turned around and he went lads lads best Gloucestershire accent can't do one (laughs) move out the way for the lady, have some oh. respect like this. And they just stopped and parted. And I stood there and went, Phil, seriously, I've been doing this for about a year. I looked at him and went, Phil, seriously, I'm so embarrassed like this. <laughs> he looked at me and went, well, are we going to do this piece or not? And literally just took me and went and sat down. There was a couple of 
a couple of little chairs that sat down and anybody that came anywhere near us, you just went, just wait. Wow. Wow. And that changed the whole thing. It was one of those things where I kind of was, and I should say out loud, I was so embarrassed. And the guy's like, don't worry, don't worry. Um, It was one of those things where he made a point that needed to be made. Yeah. You know, you can all hustle and bustle and no one of you is more important. However, I have an appointment with this person and that's who I'm going to go and speak to. It's a wonderful display of respect for you too and for the profession. Was he always known to be so uh, obliging and accommodating? And he was, with he was a gentle giant, is yeah. a gentle giant. Um, so, and I think it helped. His kids were born around the same time as my two. Yeah, right. Okay. So there was a lot of conversations about that kind of thing as well. So you had like great natural and easy rapport. Yeah. Yeah. He carried an awful lot of uh, respect from people because of the way he carried himself on the yes. uh, club and um, England. And he was much brighter than he suggested from yes. demeanour. Um, and so he was able to actually have a proper conversation with you. And yeah. he liked to sort of have the one-on-one where they'd be leaning up against the pole and have a little chat. And I remember the first few times I saw it, I was like, oh, I'd to be able to do that. <laughs> and over time, it came. Just the knowledge of the game. If you've played the game, you know the game. Even if you don't play top level, at least you know the game. Yeah. And you know what you're looking for. You know what makes it good yeah. and what needs to be improved. And so I think over time, over doing it for so long and having talked to so many people, and I never scarred anybody. I made it a big thing that my, if I was going to interview somebody, if they said something that was going to get them into trouble, I would always say to them, you know I'm recording this. Yeah. Are you sure you want that in? And I remember once speaking to somebody and I said that and he went, absolutely, put it in. Yeah, and right. it caused ructions. I cannot even remember who. It, I've got a feeling I know who it is, but I dare say it just in case it wasn't. Um, <laughs> and I spoke, to, you know, there were a few people that, you know, you always get one who's a bit rude. He's a bit, bit big, too big in his boots and mm. they want to just prove themselves. And they don't know what the history is. All they care about is what they're going to look like in the media. Yes. They can be a bit rude. I suppose unnecessarily yeah um, it's more terse I think they're not they're not being disparaging um it's just you know, the delivery the delivery is not quite right. like that yeah you know I'm I'm not only my older than you I've also played rugby and I do know what I'm talking about so give me five minutes yes and when they do things like that and then they say something stupid you don't ask them you do just put it in yeah because these people need to learn. <laughs> no, it's, you know, they're young guys and they're going to get, if not by me, they were going to get picked up by somebody. Yeah. And there were a couple of things where guys did things and you kind of shake your head and think, you, you must realise you're going to get pinged in the media for that. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Next time on the In Focus Show, we keep the questions rolling and bring to you part two of our interview. Well, listening to your body diversity because it's got to last the distance. And you've got to remember the things that you did because there's no point doing them otherwise. You do it for yourself. You don't do it for anybody else. And hopefully you don't do it for the money. You have been listening to Mojo Sports. Thank you for your support. It is very much appreciated. The team and I are trying to build something a little different here, so everyone's support is very much appreciated. Continue to support the podcast, download, subscribe, check out our social media channels, give us a follow, and be sure to tell your friends about Australia's best-kept secret. This is Mojo Sports.